Welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. And today I welcome to the show Julia Stammen, licensed professional counselor, who will be discussing her practice in areas of specialty neurodiversity, geek culture, and relational trauma. Welcome to the show, Julia. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited about this episode. Oh, I am too. I could talk about this all day long. (laughs) So why don't you tell us, you know, we know you're a licensed professional counselor. Uh, What's your experience? Sure. Yeah. So I um, just graduated in 2016. So I'm fairly fresh on the scene. And I, my experience includes working in settings like Uh, university counseling centers. I've worked at two different nonprofits. One was um, mostly focused on art therapy in Fort Worth. And then the other is a uh, place in Austin who is um, a place where people can go who are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, So I'm worked on the hotline there. And I also did counseling there. Um, I've worked in inpatient hospital, just uh, doing groups. And I've also worked at a community counseling center all before I, you know, really took root in my own private practice. Very cool. I think uh, a breadth and depth of experiences is really important when it comes to being a therapist. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly learned a lot in those four years. Oh, yeah. Um, So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Yeah, I do not accept insurance, actually. And I have been really intentional about that. I do believe that the, for me, the cons outweigh the pros. So, you know, I don't like things like session limits and required diagnoses. And, um, you know, some of the other limitations of going through insurance panels, um, my sort of 
compromise with myself there is that I do offer pretty, uh, you know, wide sliding scale option for folks who are just needing a little bit more um, support in that area. Good deal. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? Yeah, yeah. I work evenings. I do not work weekends anymore. I've worked weekends uh, most of my working life. And so that was kind of something that I wanted to give myself is the gift of having an actual weekend. Nice. That's a, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Yeah. Um, so I started out in the service industry. Um, and so first career, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> first, first serious career. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what drew you to being a therapist? Oh, so this is where I can say the next question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use it. I want to use the next question. All right. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, like, what do you do for fun? And, you know, let us get to know you a little bit. Okay. Yeah. My, myself as in not a counselor self. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I am an avid reader of graphic novels, mostly the non-superhero type. I watch a lot of movies, uh, read literature. I also play roller derby, which I don't play right now because we're in the pandemic and it's a contact sport. So it's just so, so in so many ways, just a huge no. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And then I have um, three cats and uh, live in South Austin. Um, I'm actually from Austin. Some people call us unicorns for actually <laughs> being born here and staying here. <laughs> Does it happen too often? Um, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good uh, broad sweep of, of who I am. Are you missing roller derby right now? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm able to do some uh, trail skating outside right now, kind of in a safe way. But yeah, there's nothing like that um, kind of team sport and competition feeling. And are we talking flat track or bank track? Flat track. Yeah. Nice. That's cool that you know the difference. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did a roller derby very briefly uh, after grad school, uh, but I stopped after a girl like broke her hip and she didn't have health insurance and I didn't have health insurance at the time. So I was like, holy crap, like I could, you know, be up the Creek right now too. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so I stopped, um, which I was sad about, but you know, I think it was a great experience in the first place. Yeah. That's totally fair. It is absolutely a privileged sport to play. I mean, having health insurance, it's kind of required, honestly, for, for leagues these days to have health insurance. And then you have to have like the organization's health insurance basically. And that covers liability and it's, it can, you know, it can be kind of expensive. And so there are definitely barriers to access there that, you know, we're, as a nonprofit, right, constantly kind of in communication with of how can we how can we lower those barriers? That's awesome. I didn't know that. 
a lot has changed in 10 years, 15 years, <laughs> not oh, yeah. to uh, date myself <laughs> or anything. Um, so as a therapist, what modalities do you draw upon? Yeah. Uh, so I primarily uh, offer individual therapy for adults. And then I also run Dungeons and Dragons or D&D therapy groups. Nice. Um, in my individual work, my main kind of counseling theory is uh, gestalt theory. Uh, big focus on the here and now and, you know, our, the relationship between us and kind of how that mirrors the relationships in our own lives. Uh, and then I also really draw on adult attachment theory and then mm -hmm. interpersonal neurobiology. I tap into that a little bit. I'm not a neuro. Uh, scientists, but um, do really enjoy working with some of those ideas. Uh, and then I'm also trained in sand tray therapy, which is a fairly recent development and love using art and therapy when, when we can too. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Very cool about the sand tray. I've been yeah. wanting to do that myself. It's super awesome. I probably always just missed it even in grad school um, as something that kids did. And I'm not really sure what changed my mind there, but uh, you know, at some point, some part of me was like, you know what, let's, let's look at that again. And um, wanted to kind of look at some of those nonverbal uh, approaches or interventions in therapy um, as opposed to talk therapy and looked into Santre and it's surprisingly really powerful for adults. I've experienced it on my end of, you know, just the, the metaphor and imagery and even the connection, like body connection to the sand and picking up the objects and like, oh, it's just so, so dreamy. I, I'm not able to use it right now because we're, I'm all telehealth. Yeah. So there's a bit of longing as I, as I talk about it right now. But I, I can understand that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that Santre can especially be uh, helpful for like some inner child work type of stuff too. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just, yeah, you know, it's a yeah. different way of expression. It's so cool. It is. Yeah. I mean, nonverbal child, there's a direct connection there, right? Like before right. we were able to use words and have those kind of explicit memories of you know, a, something happened from A to B kind of a thing. Yeah. So talking about neurodiversity, geek culture, and relational trauma, for those who aren't familiar with the term, what is neurodiversity and how is it characterized? Yeah, yeah. So neurodiversity is basically just referring to... Um, it's kind of a, like a positive or affirming or empowering way to refer to, you know, things like ADHD and the autism spectrum, different ways of thinking basically. And I like the term neurodiversity because it, it has kind of this quality for me anyway, it has this quality of like strengths-based um, that we, we just have, we're different as humans. We have different ways of thinking versus it being like a disorder, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I read something recently, it was like, 
basically in summation that autism is a completely different operating system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a helpful way to conceptualize it. Absolutely. I love computer metaphors. They make so much <laughs> sense for our brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A different operating system. It's, it's not a right way and a wrong way of being, although it can often feel that way and have that impact because we live in a neurotypical world where everything from our education to our social relationships to our, you know, careers and dreams and everything under the sun, like our, just our culture is modeled after like kind of a neurotypical way of, of thought and of being. Mm-hmm. Which I can imagine is, can be pretty isolative at times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, isolating and, I think a big one is internalizing mm-hmm. those beliefs from from our society and from our cultures that there's something wrong um, with you, you know, because you think differently, and kind of, you know, um, what is it like de- decoupling, like unte- untethering that kind of internalization is sometimes a, a part of the work that I help people do. That sounds like some pretty important work. Yeah, it, it feels like it, uh, in, you know, in those moments, for sure. So tell me and our listeners about geek culture. What makes somebody a geek and what sorts of things does being a geek entail? Yeah, uh, I'm so not qualified to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know who is, like, who has that expertise of or how might somebody self-identify you know like yeah well I mean honestly I think that's key that being a goal a a geek (laughs) hi I'm one (laughs) Um, being a geek (laughs) means self-identifying as one to me Mm -hmm. that that's kind of the most important part is do you want to self-identify with that do Mm -hmm. you want to be kind of associated with community and put that label on it so that others can find you or so that it becomes a part of your identity. Um, so I don't think there's any real threshold. I mean, I say that, but I also know that there are literally quizzes online that you can take that are like, am I a geek? You know, <laughs> and I just like totally reject those because I just don't think that has any merit. Yeah, no, sense. I totally understand that. Um, what about geek culture? Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a- along similar lines. But I would say just off the top of my head that geek culture, like if I had to define it, would be centered around some kind of interest or hobby or activity. Um, some Something that you know, and I even hesitate to say like something niche because with superhero movies, it's really not niche. It's really kind of mm-hmm. entered popular culture. And so um, it's almost kind of hard to hard to define that. I, I'd be interested to see if others have taken a stab at that. What, what do you think? I'm kind of curious. 
I don't know. I think the the word that comes to my head is like fantasy. Um, you know, I, I think at least from what I've seen, what I know about geeks and geek culture, a lot of it centers around things that have to do with fantasy, like D&D, for example. Um, you know, and like the, the superhero movies, um, you know, just kind of, yeah, I guess fantasy is just everything that I can think of that I would think would be related to geek culture, I think involves some sort of fantasy. Mm-hmm. But I could, I could be totally off there. No, that's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of all of the exi- ways that that is confirmed and I can't think of anything that, that, that disconfirms it at, at this ex- exact moment. Yeah. Something well, think about it. Let me know. Unreal maybe. <laughs> and uh, maybe something to do with like the hero's journey too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. imaginative as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool to think about. Yeah. And I, I wish that I could have like an interview with, you know, ask a, a panel of geeks a question, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe in the future. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We would all probably have different, different thoughts on, on that. Oh, Some for question. sure. Mm-hmm. So what are some ways that individuals who are neurodiverse benefit from aspects of geek culture? That's a good question. Um, I think there are several different things that pop up there. I think the, the first one that comes to mind is like reading emotional expression and kind of more along the autism side of neurodiversity. Um, if you think about kind of this like over-exaggeration of emotional expression in anime or sometimes, you know, comics and graphic novels, it's a lot easier to read what feeling that person is expressing. And so it just takes it out of that uncomfortable gray zone and makes it very, very clear and very um, explicit in terms of reading it. And then, you know, a a real world application would be how do I then respond to that? Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of like thinking about just like social relationships and how to, how to be with other people. I can totally see that. Um. What is another thing that comes to mind? Uh, there is the stereotype of, you know, like ADHD and instant gratification uh, mm-hmm. with probably in particular with video games. You know, there's something really appealing about, you know, having that kind of like dopamine rush of every step of the way, you know, that you're doing the right thing. You're on the right track, um, on the right uh, track to like your goals and achievements. Um, you know, you have the like sounds and the colors and the like excitement um, following every every step. It's clearly rewarded, um, um, which is something that's just doesn't really happen, at least in the adult world. <laughs> um, and like leveling up. Leveling up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people will just talk about casually, like in metaphor of like leveling up in their lives, in their, even in their adult lives. Yeah, I think that's kind of a cool like metaphor for things. And, you know, it's so funny on your website, I saw, because I always, whenever I'm doing something or learning something new, I always think of the thing above the Sims heads. Um, mm -hmm. What is it? Does it have a name? the the oh like the um bars of how far yeah. you how far you've gone and, and learning something yeah yeah um and i saw on your on your website that uh that's a way that you like to conceptualize like goals yes yes yeah i i couldn't think of the name either because i always call them sims bubbles but that's kind of a doesn't really narrow it down, but that's in my head how I refer to them. Yes, I have a chart of Sims bubbles where I have different uh, areas of learning that I want to be constantly, you know, keeping up with, up to date, almost like CE style, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, watching different things, listening to different podcasts, reading, having different trainings or experiences. Um, yeah, I lay it all out on a on a piece of paper and I love that yeah yeah super super nerdy but it it's almost on the line on the line of gamification of goals right like <laughs> yeah how can I create that reward for myself as I'm you know reading uh reading like di diving into this book that maybe part of me doesn't really want to read but mm -hmm. but another part of me wants to continue my my education and knowledge I like that I like gamification of goals and that entire concept and how we can take aspects of games and apply that to meeting goals and um, you know like you said meeting kind of that need for instant gratification mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and instant gratification and like rewards too. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lesson there, even if you take it outside of the geek context of if I do something, you know, do you do you cross off the to-do list, right? Like have you that that kind of um well, okay, it's two things. It's one, it's that reward of crossing off something on your to-do list, but then it's also have you made a like I've already done list mm -hmm. right and kind of like reminding yourself of all of the things that you have done in this past week or month versus all of the things that are that you have to do that are coming up so mm -hmm. I like that I have a book actually it's right here this is all to-do list this whole oh, book no. <laughs> I can see <laughs> daunting <laughs> Yeah, but it's how I stay organized. If it's not in there, I am not doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then I was thinking about The Sims and how I had to, um, well, I've been clean from Sims now for about 10 years. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had a serious um, addiction to it. I would, mm. you know, it was just constant. I didn't want to do anything else. And it was so fun, but, you know, it got to a play where 
my schoolwork wasn't getting done. Um, you know, and that's really when those sorts of things become a problem, right? Is when it impacts like occupational or otherwise functional aspects. Um, so I love Sims. Can't play it because it'll suck me in. But mm. Uh, mm-hmm. I totally loved the way that you conceptualized uh, the meeting goals utilizing that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sims, oh, I, I have a special place in my heart for Sims 2 um, because also not specifically Sims 2, but <laughs> uh, yeah, there's just so many, it is fantasy, but it's so close to real life that, uh, yeah, it just almost meets similar needs while you're like, if you're, you know, having your Sim learn something new, it, it I'm sure it kind of lights up those same kind of areas in the brain and man it's a shame that you haven't been able to play it for 10 years because it's it's gotten a little bit of an upgrade right (laughs) like it's a little bit more diverse right now which is great and um there are some different opportunities there but no it's bad don't don't go back (laughs) (laughs) you know the one the other thinking of like similar to real life but also still like fantasy uh, would be Second Life. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar. I never understood it. Uh, yeah, I never, I, I never played it myself. I, I would assume that it's very similar to Sims, though. Is yeah. it, am I making it up that there was some kind of multiplayer aspect of Second Life, too, where you can yeah. kind of s- some community layer mm-hmm. there? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh was what a lot of the pool was for people with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So previously, so, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, there ahead. is one other thing that that came up um, as we we're talking is the kind of like intersection of neurodiversity and in and um, geek culture is this idea of like structure and roles. Um, I've kind of said at times it's it's nice for um, somebody with social anxiety to go into this group setting where you know like okay we're doing a thing like we are playing this game you know or like um, board game night or we're doing this like we're watching this specific movie there's something very comforting about knowing what the structure of that situation is mm-hmm. um, that I think kind of overlaps with with autism and then if you like look into the structure of the game itself you know whatever game it is it's going to have rules that's what makes it a game Right. And um, so if you if you zoom into the actual game, it kind of meets the needs of the like uh, stereotypical like inner chaos world of somebody with ADHD. Yeah, it's like part of them is is wanting needing that that structure. So that was just the other uh, thought I had with that intersection. Cool. Um, well, previously on an episode of the podcast. Uh, Adam McDonald and I had talked about attachment and the different styles. Um, I read uh, a part on your blog about attachment and technology and kind of what might be expected from the various types of attachment when it comes to engagement in technology. Could you speak a little to that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's a really cool topic. Uh, there's been a lot of research done on it, actually. Cool. Um, 
not by me, um, but, you know, other people are definitely studying it. And I think it's an important topic to take a look at because, I mean, not even just um, in the pandemic world, but we do a lot of communicating through technology in our world and our relationships, not just geeks and gamers, you know, mm-hmm. um, in, in our society that is a huge way that we communicate and so it's going to impact our relationships and our attachment um you know system and so yeah some off the top of my head some of the research um you know they kind of categorize i think mostly into avoidant and anxious attachment versus the all the you know colors of the rainbow in between um but with avoidant attachment I believe the kind of general understanding was like they uh, prefer email communication <laughs> over like if you kind of look at like the mo- more most intimate type of communication would be like face to face right and then there's like maybe um, video call and then like phone call and then text and then email maybe is like the last and so uh, avoidantly attached people more prefer email. Uh, and then anxiously attached folks um, prefer a, like a variety of different modes of communication. They like to do, you know use like social media. They like to text. They like to video call. They like to do all kinds of mi- a mix of that. Um, and then the the anxiety will show up through through the communication as well. So it'll be things like calling several times in a row. Um, it will also be something like, which is, you know, um, kind of my favorite in a way is like looking at how long that person took to respond and then re- waiting that long to respond back to them. Like if they <laughs> took 10 minutes, then you're going to like, you know, so maybe somewhat consciously, some maybe really consciously say, okay, I'm going to respond in 10 minutes or more so that I don't seem needy or so that, um, you know, something about that uh, anxiousness of like, I feel like they might uh, take that the wrong way or, um, you know, whatever that thought process is. Is that kind of what you meant as far as those those differences? Yeah. And, you know, while you were talking came to mind, um, I know people who don't like sending emails, for example, because they can't see the other person's reaction or like, Mm -hmm. same with text. Mm -hmm. Um, So just a thought I had. Um, Yeah. So we talked about intersectionality a little bit. Um, Let's talk a little more about the intersectionality of neurodiversity and geek culture. Um, You know, where does it, where do you think or what do you think causes that intersectionality? Yeah, I think, you know, all, all of the things we kind of talked about earlier, I think definitely fall into the line, into that line for me. And, but when you said kind of like almost the, the direction of like how, how those intersections meet, um, I think about, the 
possible commonality of being outside the norm, you know, um, the being outside the norm for the identities, right? Geek gamer. Um, and then outside the norm in terms of like how we, how we think and, um, and, and the kind of more of the neurodiverse way. Um, so, you know, you can have like a, like this range of, of people that are, are different, um, but that commonality kind of maybe being like, okay, like, are you, are you cool? Like in terms of like, are you not cool? Right. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are, like, can I be myself around you? Like, like quirks and all, like, can I be, can I talk about this? Like, weird niche thing or can I um, let you know that sometimes maybe I interrupt you because I'm just really excited to speak and, and that it's not you know um, just kind of almost like checking in with those signs and signals of hey are you part of this like do you understand me almost mm -hmm. yeah I can see that how about the intersectionality of neurodiversity and relational trauma yeah, um, I would say what comes to mind is <laughs> probably a little bit of an idea of vulnerability. Um, I think about in particular uh, social relationships, peer relationships. Um, there's a unfortunately really common stereotype of being bullied, right? And then there is how does that bullying come into the home, you know, caretakers and parents and how do they react to that? Um, but, you know, I think with relational trauma, it doesn't discriminate necessarily. I think there's a vulnerability, right. but there's it's also not because that person is neurodiverse that they're being abused, right? Right. They have relational trauma. How about geek culture and relational trauma? Would you say there's some sort of intersectionality or relationship between the two? Hmm. Another one I haven't really thought about much. For some reason, my mind's going towards like how you could address that intersectionality with the like healing process more than like how you get to the healing process, if that makes mm -hmm, sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think about things like the hero's journey and kind of more narrative work, um, more of that figuring out where are those points where you've internalized beliefs um you know working with santre and working with dnd therapy as well um absolutely part of that maybe appeal of you know somebody walking in wanting to try group therapy uh, but also wanting to play a game that they know or are interested in mm -hmm. and lastly how about the relationship between neurodiversity, geek culture, and relational trauma? How do you think they all kind of, you know, work synergistically, if that's a word? Uh -huh. <laughs> it sounds like a word. 
Ah, gosh. Now you're really making making my brain work here. <laughs> it's it's a really, really good question to think about because I think it does it kind of it matters from beginning to end how those do intersect. Hmm. So many I'm things sure. in my head. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Well, I think people who are neuro neurodiverse, um, you know, geek culture lends itself to like we were talking about like social um you know ability to develop like social skills um you know better at identifying social cues um those sorts of things especially from stuff like D or other games like that um and then i think about um relational trauma in that I think that people who are neurodiverse, especially people on the autism spectrum, um, have a hard time connecting with other people, typically. Um, and, you know, some of that may be due to trauma, some of it may not be due to trauma, right? Um, but I do think that sometimes people in geek culture, for example, um, or rather, I'll say people outside of geek culture have a hard time connecting with people in geek culture, um, which, you know, can result, I suppose, in some relational trauma. That's kind of just what... Yeah, no, no, I'm following you. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about ba- drawing on, on what you've already kind of put out there. I'm thinking about how do we connect to people? Mm-hmm. Like, how how do we kind of using those social skills, right? Like how do we find commonalities, common ground, common interests, and that somebody who's autistic in the geek community um, may be able to lead with that. And that's that's authentically them and it works for the other person too. And so it can be kind of this safe harbor um, for somebody to be themselves to explore being themselves and where the relational trauma fits in there may be like almost outside of that safe bubble for the most part yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not totally safe in the bubble either yeah. right <laughs> even though i wish it was <laughs> yeah yeah why do you think community is so important in geek culture I think I think community is important for everybody just kind of as yeah. a blanket statement I think it's really important for our mental health honestly but I think with with geeks geek is maybe even like born out of like having that niche interest or having the fantasy element as we were talking about earlier, like some kind of subculture that you're part of. And um, so I think historically we've received a lot of judgment and like at times bullying. Um, 
you know, have been uh, looked down on or locked into these like beliefs from others that were like immature or like need to grow out of it. Um, so I feel like knowing that there are others that are out there that are just as into, um, you know, whatever you are that brings you like joy and creativity and engagement um, from like the same or similar topics um, that that's really important to combat that internalized shame mm-hmm. that we have about ourselves, who we are, who, what we're interested in. And when I think about um, community in geek culture, I think of like cons, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think those, at least I know of some people who, you know, just live for those conventions because they get to see their friends who might live, you know, on the other side of the U.S., um, you know, and it really seems to bring people together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like cons are the the mecca for sure. Uh, I think conventions, there's a lot of times um, we'll like hub around specific stores. So like a lot of comic shops, they will mm-hmm. run, you know, group games, game nights. Um, uh, what was the other one? It just came to mind online, <laughs> of course, yeah. you know, there's yeah, online yeah. community uh, so many different ways not even worth like getting into them but like forums and and things like that discord Uh, yeah discord's a great one i think a lot more people are using even during the pandemic yeah um so more of a statement than a question but i love love the geeky wellness packet that you created (laughs) and that's available on your blog um i'm gonna put the link in the show description so people can access that great Um, yeah that's such such a great idea absolutely yeah i i would love to make more stuff like that more zine kind of quality Mm -hmm. i love print media (laughs) um don't ask me how to cut and fold that thing though because i made that kind of a while ago and i could not tell you (laughs) how i did that i'm sure i was following some kind of right or reason but not sure how that goes together these days (laughs) (laughs) Um, now gatekeeping gatekeeping is something that i'm very familiar with in the context of providers and even other trans people um Mm -hmm. questioning whether you know one is like trans enough um with the potential providers withholding refusing or making it difficult to receive gender affirmative care now tell me about how one in geek culture might experience gatekeeping from fellow geeks and how this plays into perhaps relational trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that you were picking up what I was putting down earlier uh, with, with the inside of the bubble, not being mm-hmm. as safe. Um, yeah. I just want to kind of acknowledge that I've definitely experienced some of the specifically for trans folks to some of that, like black and white thinking mm-hmm. a little bit of, you know, you're either this or that. Um, so just want to acknowledge that too. Um, but with, with geek gatekeeping, it's just, I feel like it's one of those topics that makes everybody just like 
like their hearts sink because there's some in in some ways some really like high profile cases of this being a huge problem and maybe one of the main barriers uh, towards that kind of lively positive it's all good you know part of being a geek or a gamer mm -hmm. is that it's a little bit of the dark underbelly there um so uh was a question like how how it shows up yeah like how how might somebody experience it how does it show up what does it look mm -hmm. like you mm -hmm. know how can somebody say hey you know this is gatekeeping mm -hmm. yeah i think probably the two main ways that come to mind are one of them is like interest related or like fandom related mm -hmm. um kind of questioning how much you know about something and or or even taste right like do you like a certain um, era of Star Wars more than another era? And if you yeah. do, then you're not actually a Star Wars fan, right? Um, so I, I think it's it's questions maybe of like, oh, like, have you read this specific issue, you know? Or <laughs> yeah. like, what do you know about like this, uh, you know, manga or like this author and if you don't, and especially for somebody whose memory isn't great with the names, I'm definitely speaking from personal experience, it's me. Um, <laughs> it's almost like you have to have a really great memory for, for names and things like that in order to be considered a geek sometimes. Um, I think that's where, <clears throat> excuse me, that's where neurodiversity might come into play a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, memory, how memory is affected in our in our brains, dif different like cognitive processing, you know. Um, and, it, you know, it's, I love my friends that are walking encyclopedias, like walking libraries who just know, seem to uh, know all of those, you know, names, authors, um, episode numbers and what's in those issues or you know just uh that kind of like catalog memory is really cool because i don't have to google it i could just ask my friend <laughs> um but that's not me and that's not everybody who's part of this culture it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. um but i think it's something that people either consciously or unconsciously look out for they're like oh do they know do they actually know about this kind of stuff and if they don't then they're not actually a geek or actually a gamer so like the second part of that is um identity right like mm -hmm. oh you're not a geek because xyz or you're not a gamer because xyz and you know for me again personally um one way that it showed up kind of in the intersection of therapy and geek too was when i decided to switch to um, I want to I want to focus on drawing in geeks, gamers, and misfits. The sort of common joke was like, "Oh, like you just want to like counsel your partner because my partner is a geek and gamer, um, <laughs> right?" But it's it was like kind of completely ignoring the fact that like I was at all of those D and D games too, right? Like I was also um, a nerd and a gamer, and so that's kind of one of those. Um, intersections of gender and mm -hmm. uh, gaming as well as how seriously are you taken if you know your gender doesn't fit into 
you know, cis man. Mm-hmm. What would you say are some common misconceptions about neurodiversity and geek culture? Misconceptions. Huh. Um, the biggest one that comes to mind off the bat with neurodiversity is that specifically with people with autism, um, there's this misconception that they don't have empathy, but often they have a huge amount of empathy and have more trouble regulating that Mm -hmm. kind of emotion and how to take that in and how to process it and how to like stay in relational connection while that's happening. Um, with geek culture, I've, I think almost what we were uh, kind of named earlier that it's becoming more and more like popular culture. And so it's not as much of a niche as maybe people think. Like if you've played a, you know, mobile game, what is, what is the really popular one? Uh, like Candy Crush. Yeah. If you played Candy Crush, like, in some respects, like you're a gamer, like you're playing games, <laughs> right? Um, so just kind of like putting um, putting us in that one category just doesn't really fit. It's a lot more uh, nuanced and pervasive than people think. Funny fact, my mom uh, plays Candy Crush. I'm not sure if she does anymore, but she definitely did a couple of years ago. And in fact, she was rated like third, like overall. Okay. (laughs) They sent her like some plush and stuff. Uh, Oh my goodness. (laughs) That's awesome. So I need to tell my mom she's a gamer. (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. It's like a little, like I'm picturing like a greeting card. That's just like, guess what? (laughs) You like open up. You're a gamer. (laughs) Surprise. Um. Okay. Shifting uh, gears a little bit to talking more about you and um, your practice, uh, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC in the field samples? Yeah, yeah. Um, So when I was working at Safe Alliance, which is the nonprofit that I was working at here in Austin, Um, I had the pleasure of working with a lot of uh, folks who were Black, Indigenous, people of color. Uh, Fortunately, domestic violence and sexual assault does disproportionately affect that population. And so um, I would say that was probably my biggest kind of um, experience with that kind of vulnerable population. I have a special place in my heart still for that work in general and for Mm -hmm. those people. And, you know, it will always, you know, have an impact on me and will always affect the way that I look at and see the world. Um, And then I've uh, had the pleasure to work with a few trans and non-binary folks in my private practice setting. So that's kind of more where I draw from from that experience. Cool. Very cool. Um, What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? 
Yeah. Um, so I do offer free 30 minute consultations just to kind of uh, get a feel for uh, how we might work together and make time for like logistical questions. And so that would be our first kind of contact together. Um, right now they're online, but, um, or through video, but typically they would be in person. And once we've like gotten through that, I'll send a big paperwork packet and I make as much time as people need during our first session to cover what's in the paperwork, not only just sort of the um, policies, but also how it was to fill out the kind of more history taking part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't typically ask for a like verbal history necessarily in those first sessions. I like to kind of um, meet people where they're at as far as what's presently going on. And then as things come up, we will go towards the past. Um, and it's kind of intentional because I've definitely been on the side where like we start out and it's like intense history gathering and it can be really overwhelming <laughs> to do that with like this person that you don't know yet. Um, so I tried to kind of keep it a little bit more loose and natural. Um, how would you say your clients des would describe or experience you? Yeah, I will draw from what I remember them saying of me, uh, you know, in, in various points, which is uh, a lot of people say that I'm really easy to talk to and that I am warm and authentic. <laughs> um, um, I think pe most people would say that we focus a lot on like emotional expression and exploration and yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty safe to say that I've gotten that specific feedback. Now, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? This is a, everybody has a, a different answer for this and different reasons as to why or why not. Really interesting. I can't wait to listen to the other episodes to, <laughs> to listen in. Yeah. Um, I will absolutely laugh and cry with my, with my clients. How do you define holding space for someone? Mm. I think holding space is joining with them versus problem solving or trying to kind of shift them away from their pain. And it's non-judgmental, but almost more than that, like actively trying to find compassion you know, whether it's from me um, or cultivated in them or a mix of both. I think that's holding space. Good definition. I like it. I like it. Um, what's the Did best I get an advice? A plus? <laughs> Sorry. Check plus. <laughs> Ooh, check I don't, plus. I don't I like, like A, B, C, D, E, F. Okay. Yeah, e. fair There's enough. There's no E's, actually. Why do they skip E's? Uh, that's a good question. I'm gonna. To we're gonna have to Google that. Teacher friends or something. Um, <laughs> anyway, best advice you've ever received from a supervisor. I can always hear my supervisor saying, "If you don't feel emotionally safe with somebody, don't work with them." Full mm -hmm. stop. 
And she would say that. She would say full stop. Full <laughs> and stop. I just love that. Because <laughs> it's like no exceptions, like no, like your brain trying to like wiggle around or justify like, but like, but this, but that. That's, that's her like kind of full stop. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. Um, what would you say you've personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, that's just so many things. It's a whole episode in and of itself, probably. <laughs> uh, I think more recently I've been feeling, I've been learning and feeling a lot that that sense of um, hmm, that we're all kind of joined together, that we have a lot in common, a lot more in common than maybe we typically think about. And Mm -hmm. that we can almost like join each other in, in suffering and also in the ways that we come back together and connect. Mm -hmm. Got it. What do you do to take care of yourself? During the pandemic or (laughs) pre-pandemic? Give us a little taste. A little different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, roller derby has been a big one pre-pandemic. As I mentioned, we're on hiatus right now. But I do try to do some other things that kind of involve mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. So whether that is roller skating or doing like yin yoga, uh, um, you know, things that kind of sync that up and where I can find balance there. And I do, I do have like a meditation practice that I try to keep up with. I try, try to stay connected with people, you know, with my friends. And I, we do like, I, I play in my own, you know, casual D&D games and, cool. you know, engage in, in those different, you know, uh, fantasy play scenarios. That's awesome. Would you say you self-identify as a geek? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, how would you define happiness? Uh, next question. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? <sighs> embarrassing moments, uh, <laughs> plural. Um, <laughs> anytime I just can't hold it and I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of session, it's happened multiple times. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's like you can always reframe it as like, uh, I was listening to my body and I, I went ahead and, you know, took care of my body in that moment. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's just kind of embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's that bad. I mean, I have, I have clients get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of session sometimes. Um, I think it, you know, it's a matter of how we perceive it versus how other people perceive it. Right. Mm-hmm. If we say that it's embarrassing well, it's embarrassing, right? But if we normalize it, then it's not so bad. It's true. Yeah. If it, if it wasn't like a social norm almost, it wouldn't even mm-hmm. be something that 
would register as embarrassing. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, next question, maybe even more vulnerable. I, I don't know if I'm going to get a next question on it or not. Okay. Um, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yeah. Um, this isn't the next question for me at all. I, I am in therapy and have been for a while. And I, I do believe in the kind of uh, model or belief of kind of pretty much constantly being in therapy. Um, view it as more of like going to the gym um, versus a, a crisis situation. And um, yeah, I love love my therapist and uh yeah wouldn't wouldn't change that at all i think it's an important part of self-care yeah no I, I totally agree um well is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you i don't think so i think we've covered a, a good deal of ground and um really enjoyed your questions and yeah, I think that it gives a, a pretty good idea of who I am. I think so too. I, I think uh, a lot of people are going to appreciate this podcast um, and connect with you. I hope so. Yeah, I love love connecting with people and kind of just providing a little example of how it's okay to be a geek and be a professional at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And before I forget, and before we end here, what is your um, webpage address? Oh, yeah. It is just my first and last name. So it's www.juliastammon.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Julia. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Lauren Farwell to discuss her practice and area of specialty, assessment and differential diagnosis. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.